Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I continue to watch what's going on in our country with absolute uh, disbelief. I mean, this past week, we witness the current administration use unconstitutional powers to issue a vaccine mandate for millions of Americans while exempting Congress and their staff and the United States Postal Service, as if that makes any sense. And regardless of what your thoughts are on taking or not taking the vaccine, it should be of great concern to every single American that this is probably the greatest act of tyranny ever done by a United States president. We still have Americans trapped in Afghanistan after being left behind by the government. And as far as I know, there are still a number of planes of Americans that are not being allowed to leave by the Taliban. The Taliban are now partnering with the Chinese. They made that announcement. And the Chinese are no doubt reverse engineering at this very moment some of our high-tech military equipment, vehicles, and aircraft that were left behind intentionally. The Chinese now are emboldened. They're saber-rattling. A couple of days ago, Chinese military aircraft entered Taiwanese airspace. I mean, they're just testing the waters because they know that we have a weak and feckless president and administration. Here in California, we have a recall election coming up in two days, which will determine the course of our state for the next two years. And if the current governor manages to stave off the recall, I think that we can no doubt look for him to come back with a vengeance. The Democratic supermajority in Sacramento continues to turn out bills that are absolutely reckless at best, stupid at worst, and will only further erode our laws and our state economy as more and more businesses and people flee the state. I read that 114 corporate headquarters relocated from California to Texas last year alone. But the bills that are coming out of Sacramento are utterly ridiculous. For example, since August 30th, here's just a few. The Senate passed AB 518, which greenlights reduced sentences for criminals who commit multiple crimes. The Senate passed AB 333, which would reduce penalties for serious crimes committed by gang members. The Democrats passed AB 37, which requires a, a vote by mail uh, be ma- uh, uh, a, a vote by mail be ma- mailed to every active registered voter starting January 1st, 2022. And the voter rolls in California are already a, a huge mess because of the the DMV's practice of automatically registering Californians to vote, which has created a catch-all system that allows ineligible voters to participate. 
I can't remember the number of illegal aliens that they estimate voted in the last election here in California alone. Democrats passed SB 339, which assesses a per-mile driven vehicle tax statewide. This is the first step in moving California closer to a per-mile gas tax, which, of course, will disproportionately affect rural Californians. Senate Democrats voted to ban gas lawnmowers, generators, and leaf blowers. How do you figure? I mean, who thinks of these things? Seriously. They also passed AB Uh, 1238, which allows pedestrians to ignore walk signs and stoplights. I mean, why would you do that? And this is why it's important that we get out and vote. I mean, I read that in the last election, only one out of three Christians voted. And that is absolutely shameful. It is shameful. So not only are we're seeing uh, unbelievable things going on in our country and in the state. Internationally, it's just as bad. The government of Australia has gone off the rails into full-blown totalitarian control under the guise of health and safety. We're seeing protests there against such tyranny. We're seeing hundreds of thousands of people in, across Western Europe, in England, France, and Germany, just to name a few, defiantly taking to the streets, protesting, Draconian COVID mandates, including vaccine passports. And like we learned last week in Psalm 2, the nations are raging, aren't they? People are plotting in vain. Governments have set themselves against Christ, but he's laughing at them from the throne because he's in control. And things are simply falling into place to bring about God's plan and purpose. And with that in mind, we don't need to be anxious or or afraid over everything that's happening in our nation and the world because our king is still Jesus and our citizenship is still in heaven. And so in that, we greatly rejoice, don't we? Because nothing, nothing in this world, I mean, no one and no power can ever separate us from Christ and our eternal home. But as citizens of heaven, which we are, who also hold an earthly citizenship, how are we to live? As citizens of heaven, we would probably have to say that we're like exiles living in a foreign country. And in a very real spiritual sense, we're like the Jews who were living in Babylon where they had been carried captive. You know, And how did God instruct the Jews, the exiles, to live while they were in Babylon. Well, I want you to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 29 for a moment. This is not where we're going to be this morning. We're just, this is just the introduction. <laughs> so turn to Jeremiah 29. And we're seeking to answer the question, how should we live as exiles in a foreign land? Well, here's how God instructed the Jews to live while in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, let me read verses 4 through 7. This is Jeremiah the prophet speaking. And he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But then he said in verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Why? For in its welfare you will find your welfare. So they were to build homes, plant gardens, eat the produce, continue to marry, continue to give their sons and daughters in marriage, continue to increase. And all these things, of course, speak of time and and, and longevity. They were going to be there for a while. And they weren't just to quit living. They were to continue to live a normal life as best as possible and, and to seek to thrive and to prosper the best they could. And then with regard to Babylon itself, God instructed them to seek its welfare. It means its benefit. It means to seek what is good. It means to seek its well-being. And they were to pray to the Lord on behalf of Babylon and its people because, he said, in its welfare, in its well-being, they would find well-being for themselves. In other words, they were to be good citizens. They were to be model citizens. And I would suggest to you this morning that that is what we as citizens of heaven living in exile here as citizens of the United States are to do as well. We are to live our lives for the Lord and to seek to prosper in the land. We're to be praying for our city, state, and nation for their welfare and good because in their welfare we will find ours as well. And so what does that look like practically speaking? First of all, in seeking the welfare of our nation by being good citizens, we must never lose sight of the fact that first and foremost, it means that we are to live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, but these two things are not incompatible, being a good citizen and living for Christ. I mean, spiritually speaking, seeking the welfare of our nation means that we're to to live for Christ, never losing sight of the fact that we belong to him, lock, stock, and barrel. Because we have been bought for a price. We belong to him. We've been left here to live for him and not ourselves, but rather for him. And we are to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we are to be connected with and deeply involved in the life of a local body of believers. Our lives should be centered upon God and the things of God. And when it comes to our contact with those within the sphere of influence where God has placed each one of us, we're to be light and salt. That never changes no matter where we live or under what conditions we find ourselves living in. Again, we have been left here to live our lives for him as as witnesses living out the gospel so that the gospel appears glorious and then proclaiming the gospel as God gives us opportunity, because that, loved ones, is the only hope for any kind of lasting change in our nation. Christ is our hope. But is that all? Are we to to live spiritual lives, Christian lives, but isolate ourselves from society and culture? Are we to withdraw and and have the bunker mentality, you know, withdraw from society, be uninvolved in, in anything to do with our earthly citizenship? No, God forbid. God forbid. 
Seeking the welfare, seeking what is good for our country would certainly include being responsible and fulfilling the obligations we have as good citizens. Exercising the rights that we have been given by God. Seeking the welfare of our city, state, and nation of necessity means engaging the culture, not withdrawing, engaging. It means being involved in the public square. It means standing up and speaking out against evil. Of course, that's costly. It's much easier to isolate and and remain silent, but we can't do that. We have to stand up and speak out against evil. We have to resist evil. And this means being informed and being involved. I mean, we need Christians living in every strata of society, working in every field, working in every profession. And that means that we need Christians in politics too. We need Christians on local school boards, the city council, the board of supervisors. We need genuine believers in political office at the state and federal level, being light and salt, seeking to influence people and the laws for the good. I mean, obviously, we can't all do that. But one thing we all can do is be informed and cast our vote. I mean, voting for the candidate or the platform closest to our deeply held biblical morals and principles. And many don't vote. I think some people think that that's spiritual. It's not spiritual. It's carnal. I mean, many people don't vote because they say their vote doesn't count or or what good does it do or, you know, they won't vote for a pagan. Well, let me ask you something in all seriousness. When has any gubernatorial or presidential election been anything other than the lesser of two evils? There is no excuse for this passivity and apathy that we see in in so many Christians. There is no excuse for shirking our responsibility as citizens. We're to seek the welfare of the land. And God has blessed us to be citizens in this country. I mean, my goodness, we could have been born in, in, uh, under some tyrannical government or under a, a, a Muslim country under Sharia law. But God has blessed us to be citizens in this country and, and we're to be good stewards of that citizenship God has blessed us with, seeking the welfare of the place we live. And the attitude of, oh, you know, hey, The world's going to hell, but I'm going to heaven. You know, what do I care what happens in this election? God is sovereign. And I am so tired of believers using the sovereignty of God for lack of any kind of responsibility and passivity. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign. That's the only reason we're able to sleep at night, because He's sovereign and in control. God is sovereign, and we should never forget that. But let's also never forget that God and His sovereignty chooses to work through people. And so we have a responsibility before God to use our citizenship wisely while we're exiles to seek the welfare of our city, our state, and our nation. The godly J.C. Ryle, who was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, said this, The man who is content to sit ignorantly by his own fireside 
wrapped up in his own private affairs and has no public eye for what is going on in the church and the world is a miserable patriot and a poor style of Christian. Next to our Bibles and our own hearts, our Lord would have us study our own times. And that is exactly right. We should be like the men of Issachar who came to King David. And the Bible says of these men, they were men who had understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. That should describe us. We are understanding of the times and we know what we ought to do and then we actually ought to do it. I mean, bottom line is we live our lives for Christ seek to advance his kingdom to bring about lasting change. And then as good citizens, we do all we can to change things in our society and government. And all the while, we are are fervently praying to the Lord, consistently, fervently praying to the Lord, interceding on behalf of our nation for its welfare. Because in it, we'll find our own. And so we work as if it all depended upon us, but we're always praying because ultimately every bit of it is in God's hands. And then we accept the outcome as being from Him, whatever that outcome may be. And it may be that God will bring about a change for the good. Or it may be that the United States and the church in this country is in for a real good spanking. One theologian from centuries ago said, They who rule unjustly and incompetently have been raised up by God to punish the wickedness of the people. A wicked king is the Lord's wrath upon the earth. And he said in another place, A wicked prince is the Lord's scourge to punish the sins of the people. You know, as our nation continues to go downhill and and our selection of leaders gets worse by the day, it certainly seems that we're under divine judgment. But listen, having said all of that, all is not lost. Listen, there is always hope because Christ is King. And He has in the past brought great spiritual awakenings in this country. And he may choose to do so again. We can only pray. And we all should be praying to that end. We should be praying to that end while we work to bring about change both politically for our short-term welfare, but more importantly, spiritually. For the eternal welfare of the souls of men and women and boys and girls. But another issue that we must consider uh, living as exiles in a foreign land. We also have to think about the fact that as we live the Christian life as exiles, as we're making our way to our, uh, the eternal city and our eternal home, our heavenly home, we can be absolutely certain that along the way we're going to encounter opposition from the world. And as we get closer and closer to the end of the age, we can expect the opposition to become more fierce. And so with that in mind, please turn in your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 4. And because we're going to do the entire chapter, and because of its length and the length of the message, I'm not going to take the time to read it ahead of time. We'll just read it as we go through it. 
Let me give you some historical background to set the context. In 538, God moved on the heart of Cyrus, the king, so that he issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And he allowed Zerubbabel and 50,000 Jews to return to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they started rebuilding the temple. But they experienced some opposition, and so after a short time, the construction was stopped by a succeeding Persian king. And God then sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to get things going again. And so 20 years after the first group returned, the temple was completed. And you can read about that in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. And then there is a 60-year gap during which time Queen Esther lives and rules as Queen of Persia. And then in 457 B.C., a second group returned under the leadership of Ezra. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And God then used Ezra to bring about a revival among the people who had again fallen into sin, into the sin of marrying foreign wives. Ezra brought about a, a spiritual reformation and tried to get the, the people motivated to rebuild the city and the walls, but they encountered an enormous amount of opposition and they were unable to rebuild the walls. And so the walls remained in ruin. And 14 years later, when Nehemiah heard about what was going on and the terrible conditions of things in Jerusalem, uh, that's the point where the book of Nehemiah begins. And Nehemiah, as you know, was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And when he heard about the destruction of Jerusalem, and, and as, as a result, he began to pray. He began to intercede and pray that God would give him favor with the king. That's Nehemiah chapter 1. In chapter 2, Nehemiah was granted permission by the king to return to Jerusalem along with letters the king sent him, granting him safe passage and then ordering the keeper of the king's forest to give Nehemiah everything that he needed for the rebuilding project. And then upon arriving in Jerusalem, he quietly assessed the situation and then he gathered the people together and challenged them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And they all responded by saying, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. And so Nehemiah and the people began working and rebuilding, and they did so for the glory of, the God, for the glory of God. That was chapter 2. And this huge rebuilding project required the participation of all of the people. And that's Nehemiah chapter 3. And all of the people did participate except a, a group of nobles from Tekoa. Evidently, they felt they were above manual labor, but everyone else participated, each one doing his or her part. They got right to the work. They didn't waste any time in doing the work that God had called them to do. And so at the end of chapter 3, everybody was hard at work rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And now as we come to chapter 4 of Nehemiah, we learn a basic spiritual principle which we must always keep in the forefront of our minds, and that principle is this. Whenever God's people begin to do God's work, they are going to face opposition. So when God's people are, are burdened for the salvation of the lost and they're, and they're doing the work of the Lord, you know, whenever the church stands up and declares the Word of God, whenever the church proclaims the gospel, declaring that Jesus Christ is the only way, that heaven is only for those who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, and hell is for all of those who do not, 
When the church declares that one must maintain sexual purity and that marriage is between one man and one woman and that premarital sex is a sin and that homosexuality and lesbianism and transgenderism is a sinful deviation of God's word and his plan. Whenever the work of God goes on like that, and whenever the church sets out to do anything for the glory of God, you can count on the fact that all hell is going to break loose against it. Because the enemy doesn't want the work of God to make progress of any kind. And the enemy will use any and every opportunity he can to attack and to wreak havoc in a church. And so as we seek to do God's work God's way, we can expect opposition. And this is certainly not unique to us today. Oh no, the work of God has been opposed. You know, we see it throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. All we have to do is look at the life of the Lord Jesus and the opposition he encountered. You know, knowing this, Paul, in, in writing to the church of Ephesus, said in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, having done all to stand firm. When Paul wrote to Timothy, who was, as you know, uh, timid, he was a timid young man. Paul said to him in 2 Timothy 2.3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So when we seek to do the work of God, God's way, we're going to face opposition. And you can say that the real theme of Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6 is spiritual warfare. And Satan, whose name means adversary, was Nehemiah's real opponent. And I say that because Satan is always behind the opposition to any work of God. He's trying to spoil, frustrate, and wreck God's plans and rob God of his glory. Satan is always the one ultimately behind opposition. He's an enemy that we need to take very seriously. But we certainly don't need to panic in the face of his opposition. Because as Christians, we're, we're not supposed to run scared of Satan. We're not to spend our time worrying about him as if there is no limit to what he can do. Because Christ has overcome him. Christ has defeated him. And what Satan can do is sovereignly restricted by God. Because God is not going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. So as believers, we should detest Satan, but not fear him. Because we can put on the full armor of God so that when the enemy comes, we may be able to stand firm or stand our ground, and then we're to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And we also should be watching constantly for signs of his being on the prowl. So that, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. I mean, spiritually, we should, we should recognize Satan's opposition and react as we're going to see that Nehemiah did, the way Nehemiah did. 
In Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to see some different ways which Satan opposes the work of God. And we're going to learn from Nehemiah how to stand against that opposition. Notice now, in verses 1 to 6, we're going to see uh, opposition through mockery. Opposition through mockery. Look at verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were regional governors serving under the king of Persia. And these three men were enemies of the Jews who made a number of attempts to stop Nehemiah from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And so here we're speaking about Sanballat. And Sanballat knew that Nehemiah was in Jerusalem and that he had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel, and, and that disturbed him. And when he heard that the Jews were rebuilding the wall, he was angry and he was greatly enraged. And you say, well, well why is that? Well, one commentator explained it this way. A powerful Jerusalem meant a depressed Samaria. One of the main highways linking the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley to the north with Egypt in the south and Philistia to the west passed through Jerusalem. With Jerusalem once more a well-protected city, its very location would attract trade and gone would be Samaria's economic supremacy in the land beyond the rivers. And so the building that was going on in Jerusalem was going to affect the economics of the entire region. In other words, it was going to have an effect on Sanballat's pocketbook. And not only that, it was going to affect his power and his prestige. Sanballat no doubt also saw it as a challenge to his authority, and he didn't like that at all. And he's clearly worried by the Jews' actions. And he expressed it by jeering, which means making rude and, and mocking remarks toward them. And this was actually something that he, had, he and his friends had done before the building ever began. You can read about it in chapter 2, verse 19. And so now, in front of the army of Samaria, Sanballat intensifies his ridicule, and no doubt to encourage his allies to join him in resisting the Jews. Look what he says in verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And so he's just mocking them. Calls them feeble, which means withered and, and miserable. In other words, they were a pathetic and incompetent bunch of people. He also mocked the work. You know, will they restore it, the wall for themselves, he says. How do they ever think they're going to, to build a strong wall? Will they sacrifice, he says. In other words, hey, it's going to take more than, than prayer and worship to build this wall. Will they finish up in a day? In other words, they don't know how big a job this really is and, and how long this is going to take. And then he says, well, they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and, and burned ones at that. You know, they don't even have good building materials. But ironically, the answer to that mocking question would be yes, they would. And so the Samaritan army probably had a pretty good laugh at the Jews' expense. And then Tobiah, 
Sanballat's friend and ally, he was there, and obviously he was all pumped up about this. And after hearing Sanballat, he wanted to put in his two cents worth. Look at verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. You're thinking, what? I mean, it's one of those jokes that I guess you really had to be there. And even then, it wasn't funny, you know. And everybody was probably thinking, Tobiah, what are you talking about? And so here the enemy opposed the Jews with ridicule, with mockery. And as one man said, ridicule is the language of the devil. This isn't something unusual. We see it throughout the Scriptures. King David was subjected to mockery by Goliath. The prophets were subject to ridicule and mockery. Jesus, of course, was subject to awful mockery. Uh, No doubt the Apostle Paul was subjected to a lot of ridicule as well. And today, Christians are, are mocked. We're mocked on television. We're mocked on the radio. We're mocked in the press all of the time. You know, rude, mocking remarks are are something that is extremely hard on our flesh. I mean, nobody likes to be made fun of and and be put down. No one likes to be laughed at. In fact, one man said, some people who can stand bravely when they are shot at will collapse when they are laughed at. You know, mockery is a very powerful weapon Satan often uses to try and defeat the people of God and and the work of God. He uses it against us as individuals. He uses it against churches in an attempt to discourage us from doing what God has called us to do. And so as we're about the work of the Lord, you know, as we're seeking to live for Christ, we can expect uh, to be on the receiving end of ridicule. And so what should our response be? Well, let's look and see how Nehemiah responded. Look at verse 4. Hear, O our God. Let's just stop there. What's he doing? He's praying, isn't he? The first thing Nehemiah does is pray. He wasn't angry, discouraged, or defeated by their mockery. He just simply took it straight to the Lord in prayer. And that's how we're to respond to opposition of any kind. We first of all turn to God in prayer. Nehemiah didn't respond to the opposition. He didn't uh, let it take him from his work. He didn't even defend himself or what they were doing. Instead, he prayed. And so let's read his prayer together. Look at verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. You know, Lord, turn it back. You know, turn back their taunt on their own heads. In other words, Lord, let it backfire on them. I mean, Nehemiah realized that Sanballat and Tobiah's opposition against the Jews was in reality opposition against God. He said they have provoked you to anger. So Nehemiah's prayer wasn't for personal vengeance. Rather, he was praying as a servant of God, concerned for God's work and God's glory. And so in dealing with the opposition, Nehemiah responded by praying. 
Is that all? Well, no, of course not. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the work was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So Nehemiah prayed, and guess what? They just kept right on going. They just kept right on going with the work. The verse tells us that the entire wall was joined together to, to half its height because the people had a mind to work. You see, they didn't fall into the trap of, of only praying and doing nothing. Neither did they work and not pray. No, they prayed and worked consistently and simultaneously. And that is how we are to respond to opposition from the enemy, whatever form it comes in. First of all, we pray, right, and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We make our requests known to God. We commit it all to Him, as Peter said, casting all our cares upon Him because He cares for us. And so we pray. And then secondly, we keep on with the work that God has called us to do, praying and working consistently and simultaneously. Because if we let opposition of any kind keep us from doing what God has called us to do, we are playing right into the hands of the enemy. There's one of Satan's greatest victories when through opposition he keeps us from doing the work that God has called us to do or from living the life that God has called us to live. And so we pray and we work. Letting nothing distract us. I mean, we need to always keep this in mind. And now in verses 7 to 9, we see a second form of opposition the enemy often uses. And that is opposition through threats. Look at verses 7 and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed... They were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So when ridicule didn't work, they called a meeting with the enemies of the Jews on every side, and they discussed attacking Jerusalem to cause confusion. And so instead of dying down, we see that the opposition intensified. You're saying, well, wait a minute, Nehemiah prayed, and they worked. You know, they overcame the ridicule. The opposition should have died down. Yeah, but it didn't. In fact, it's actually worse. First, it was just mockery. Now it's a threat of armed conflict. You see what's going on here? You see, many Christians think that if we pray, uh, the opposition is just going to automatically die down and go away and everything's just going to be fine. But instead, what we may find is this, that after we have prayed for weeks or months, that the opposition is actually worse. Why? Well, we don't always know the why. We won't, uh, we won't this side of heaven. But often God allows the opposition to continue and even to intensify because he's using it to draw us closer to him to cause us to depend upon Him because He is working to mature us and to strengthen our faith. And so the opposition may continue and even intensify if that's what God determines we need. But the point here is simply that as long as we are about the work of the Lord and we're having an impact on the kingdom of darkness for Jesus Christ, we're going to experience opposition in different forms. 
Satan uses all kinds of opposition to destroy, seeking to destroy us, the church, and the work of God. But the good news is that God will actually use this in our lives for our good and for His glory. I mean, for those who love God, what? All things work together for good. We don't like to think of that in terms of persecution or opposition or difficulties. But that's probably primarily what it's referring to. God uses what Satan meant for evil for good. It's an opportunity for us to learn and to grow and to mature. And so now the opposition comes against Nehemiah and the Jews in the form of a threat of attack. And Nehemiah probably uh, knew that they would not make an all-out frontal assault against Jerusalem because uh, Nehemiah was there by the authority of King Artaxerxes. But he probably also knew that they were certainly capable of conducting guerrilla warfare. They wouldn't march straight up and, and make an attack on one of the gates of Jerusalem, but they certainly could make small raids at different places along the wall. And this type of warfare would demoralize the people and and probably stop the work. And so we shouldn't miss this. Because this is how Satan works against the church, especially in this country. In attacking the local church, Satan doesn't doesn't march in the front door and come right down the middle aisle challenging the exposition of scriptures. You know, he's too smart for that. Instead, he comes in the side doors. He comes down the side aisle, sowing seeds of discord. He comes down the hallways where in private conversations he sows disharmony and and discouragement. He comes cleverly and quietly, subtly. He's an expert in guerrilla warfare. He's an expert in uh, dividing and conquering. So we should always be alert to this kind of opposition from the enemy. Because this is the last thing that any church needs to have happen. And so we need to be aware of how Satan likes to work through this kind of opposition. And so the Jews were under the threat of attack. Well, how did Nehemiah respond? Well, he did what he always did. First, he prayed. Look at verse 9. And we prayed to our God. Nehemiah prayed because Nehemiah was dependent upon God. And that's seen in the fact that throughout the book of Nehemiah, he constantly prayed. He was a man of prayer. Lord, he said, I I know what they're threatening to do, and I'm totally dependent upon you. And so, Lord, I'm coming to you first thing. Lord, help us. Well, after he prayed, what did he do? Well, look back at verse 9. He set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah prayed, and then he took action. He was a man who trusted God, and he was a man who was also very practical. Nehemiah prayed, and then he posted a guard day and night. And we see the same response here as we did in the first six verses. The opposition came, they prayed, they took the necessary action, and they continued the work. You see, Satan will change his tactics. You know, he'll use opposition in different forms, but our response is always the same. We pray, we take action, and we keep on working. And this is so very simple. 
Yet I think this is something that many people today miss in their daily Christian walk, and it's certainly something that many churches miss or forget as well. To be humbly dependent upon God in prayer does not mean that we, uh, as one man said, enter into some kind of theological twilight zone where we just pray and then we sit and do absolutely nothing. It's the principle of faith and works. Faith without works is dead, James tells us, right? Nehemiah didn't start a big prayer meeting and then say, well, that'll do it. He didn't say, okay, guys, we've got a major problem. We've got trouble on every front. We've got guerrilla warfare. They could attack and they could attack and tear us down. So what we're going to do is pray. And once we've prayed, it's all going to be over so we can sit back and wait for God to work because we know that God is sovereign. Well, that's the way some people live their Christian life. All I'm going to do is pray. And then after I have prayed, then God somehow miraculously intervenes and it's all over. No, it's not. I mean, certainly there are times throughout Scripture when God does that, but that's not generally the case. Let me ask you something. For example, if you're looking for a job, what do you do first? Well, you should pray, right? You should pray. Lord, help me find a good job. Well, then what do you do? Sit and wait for somebody to call you? No, you go out and knock on doors. That's right. And if you're serious, you're going to knock on a lot of doors. You pray and you take action. You knock on doors. You don't sit in your room and pray and do nothing and think of yourself as being super spiritual. It shows great lack of maturity. Oh, you say, but I'm trusting God. Well, good. If you trust Him, then that means you're going to get out and go knock on doors because you know that God is going to providentially provide for you. You trust God to providentially direct you and provide you a job. But you've got to get out and knock on doors. So we're to pray. But then we must take some action because prayer is not an excuse for inaction, and taking action after we've prayed is certainly not a lack of trust. Rather, it is the principle of faith and works. And so they prayed, and they took action. They posted a guard day and night. And now in verses 10 to 19, actually 10 to, yeah, 10 to 19, Uh, we'll see that opposition came from within in the form of discouragement. And up to this point, the opposition has been from without, you know, from the enemies of the Jews. But now there are problems coming from within Jerusalem. You see, pressures from without will often create problems from within. And one of the problems that so often is seen coming from within is that of discouragement. The people were discouraged. Look at verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. 
by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And so the enthusiasm that they started out with was beginning to wane. I mean, clearing the rubble away was, was a much bigger job than they had anticipated. And now they're saying there's too much rubble. Oh, you know, by ourselves, we're not going to be able to do this. But they were halfway. They had already joined the wall up to half its height. But so often the halfway point is the toughest of all. I mean, they were tired and they were weary of building. They, they had experienced mockery and threats of attack, but, but now they're beginning to lose heart. You know, now they're getting discouraged. They'd lost their perspective. They weren't conscious, it seems, of, of how much had already been done. They lost their focus. Their focus was still on how much had to be done. And they basically said, you know what, this job is more than we can ever hope to finish. We're just not going to be able to rebuild the wall. And to add to their discouragement, reports were coming in from those Jews living in outlying areas that the enemy was planning a surprise attack. Notice verses 11 and 12. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, they said to us ten times, you must return to us. Now, whether these Jews from uh, the outlying areas were merely spreading rumors to assist Sanballat and Tobiah, we don't know. Uh, but they told the story repeatedly. Verse says, they said to us ten times. And ten times is a Hebrew phrase meaning many times. In other words, they just, keep, they just kept telling it over and over and over again. And notice Nehemiah writes that they said to us. Not said to me, they said to us. In other words, these people were telling everybody that, that wherever we turn, you know, they're going to be upon us. They were just going around telling everybody and they just kept repeating it. And so either knowingly or unknowingly, they were spreading despondency and, and discouragement among those doing the work throughout Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is probably thinking, man, with friends like this, who needs enemies? And if it wasn't intentional, they, they perhaps may have even thought that they were being helpful. You know, just pointing out the, the facts. But they were only discouraging and demoralizing the people. J.I. Packer said this, As it was in the days of Nehemiah, so it continues to be. Few, if any, churches lack friends of a sort who feel it is their special ministry to impart negative assurances of this kind. <laughs> they think they have the gift of discouragement. And really what it is they have is the gift of irritation. <laughs> He continues, and these people never doubt that their never doubt that their doomsaying is the most helpful contribution they can make. The factual information they bring may, of course, be useful, but the gloom they spread is unbelief, masquerading as wisdom, and needs to be nipped in the bud. <laughs> That's true. 
So the people were extremely discouraged about the remaining work to be done, and and the Jews spreading the rumors about the possible attacks were just adding to the problem, just making it that much worse. So whether we're speaking of an individual or as a church, this kind of discouragement can hit all of us in our daily walk. And man, this kind of thing uh, can just take it right out of you. It'll just sap your strength. Maybe you've been a Christian for a few years and and now the excitement and the newness of your new life in Christ is, you know, it's worn off a little bit and uh, you're now not as young as you once were. You don't have the drive you once had and, and life is still this long road to travel and it's a hard road that we travel. You're beginning to find out that the Christian life really is a battle and you realize the battle has taken more out of you than you thought. It's cost you more than you ever dreamed. I mean, you forgot that becoming a Christian is called taking up your cross and denying yourself daily and following Christ, no matter what the cost. You know, nobody ever told you that it would, what it would really mean to be a Christian and to live a life for Christ. Or... On the other hand, maybe you're in the heat of the battle and the fight is raging all around you and you're beginning to ask yourself, how in the world am I ever going to get through life? How am I ever going to finish the course that God has set for me? Lord, I don't don't think I'm going to make it. And you're just discouraged and you want to quit and you want to give up. Let me encourage you this morning not to give up. When discouragement comes, here's a few things that we need to do. Number one, we need to realize where opposition comes from. The opposition we encounter, the discouragement we experience, isn't coming from God. It comes from our adversary, the devil, working through circumstances and people. But as Paul said, we're not ignorant of his devices. So let's not forget that. The enemy wants to kill, rob, and destroy. And we need to realize where the opposition comes from. Secondly, we need to recognize the reason for the opposition. Anytime the enemy sees a work of God, he's going to oppose it. And the very fact that you and I are involved in the work of the Lord means that we can count on opposition. I mean, didn't Jesus say, in this world you will have tribulation? It's a promise. Yes, he's overcome the world, and we're to be of good cheer because of that. But that doesn't negate the fact we're going to experience tribulation. We're going to experience opposition, sometimes fierce. Hey, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world have been uh, paying with their lives. We shouldn't think it's strange when we encounter various trials. So we need to recognize the reason for the opposition. Or no, we need to recognize the reason for the opposition. Anytime the enemy sees God's work, he's going to oppose it. We're involved in the work. He's, did I already say that one? Did I, was that number two? Did I say that one already? See, I'm getting old. <laughs> number three. So number one, we need to realize where the opposition comes from. Number two, we need to recognize the reason for the opposition. And number three, we need to resist the enemy, which is exactly what Nehemiah did here. Look at verse 13. So in the lower parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans 
with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So much for conscientious objectors. At this point, Nehemiah temporarily stopped the work, armed the people, and put them in family groups at the most exposed places along the wall. And they resisted the enemy by being equipped with weapons of war and by having people in strategic positions. And that's a picture of the body of Christ working together. It's people taking their place in the body, doing their part, being equipped with the weapons we need, having on the armor of God, praying at all times. And God has given us the power to resist and the weapons to fight with. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.4, Our weapons, weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And so when we get discouraged, we need to realize where the opposition comes from. We need to recognize the opposition. And then thirdly, we need to resist the enemy. And then number four, we need to refocus. We need to refocus. We need to remember the Lord. Look at verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Now, if Nehemiah had just said, do not be afraid of them and nothing else, that really would have been of no help. The people probably would have said, what do you mean, don't be afraid? <laughs> we're dog-tired. You know, we're never going to finish this wall. We're surrounded on every side and outnumbered. And you say, don't be afraid? What kind of spiritual platitude is that? But that's not all that Nehemiah said. Look back at verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. What are we supposed to do? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Don't be afraid, he says. Why? Well, remember the Lord. The source of strength is the knowledge of God. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, he says. I mean, discouragement is often a matter of fear. We lose sight of how great and awesome God truly is. We, we forget all that He has done. And we become afraid as if God can't do anything else. But as Paul said in 2 Timothy 1, God gave us a, not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We're not supposed to live in fear of anything. And the people were discouraged and afraid. They had forgotten how great and awesome God truly is. They had forgotten that all, all God had done to this point. And so Nehemiah said to them, Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And remembering the Lord involves getting our eyes back on Him and, and off of the work, off of the obstacles, off of the people, off of the problem. And if you focus on the problem or the people, it, it, it gets so big, it, it clouds your vision, you can't see anything else. And so we have to get our eyes off of that and, and get them back on the Lord. It's refocusing on Him. It's remembering His grace, His mercy, His great faithfulness, His wisdom, and His power. When we get our eyes off the Lord, we get into trouble. We get our eyes on something else. I don't care what it is. We get our eyes on something else and our affections on something else. We forget about the Lord and the things of God become secondary and, and they fade to the background. We can't do that. We're going to get in trouble. 
When we get our eyes off the Lord, we get into trouble. Remember Peter? Jesus walking across the stormy seas told Peter to come. Peter got out of the boat. Hey, he did great. Until he got his eyes off of Jesus and started looking around, he's probably thinking, what am I doing? And we know the story. He went down, but Jesus took him by the hand. When we're discouraged, we need to, get, we need to refocus. We need to get our eyes back on Christ. We need to refocus on all that, that God is. All that he has done. Thinking all of this through and, and applying it to the situation at hand. How do we do this? How do we get refocused on the Lord? Certainly through prayer, being in the Word, you know, our own personal study and devotion, because it's through His Word that God reveals Himself to us and speaks to us. But it's, it's, it's much more than that. Don't think that your personal Bible reading is near enough. It's not. It also means faithfully sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. That means being in church where you can be equipped to live this life we're called to live. The last thing we do when we get discouraged, the last thing we should do when we get discouraged is quit. Number five, when we're discouraged, the fifth thing we should do is reflect. We should reflect on what is involved. Look back at verse 14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You see, the fight, the battle they were in was for everything. It was for everything dear to them. That, that's what was at stake. And we need, to, we need to reflect on what is at stake in the battle that we're in. First of all, God's glory is at stake. Along with our marriages, our children, our homes, our church, our state, our nation. We are in a battle for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And we need to reflect on that. We're in a spiritual battle with the forces of darkness. And so it behooves us to get refocused on God and reflect on just what is at stake and then get on with the work of God for the glory of God, living the life He's called us to live, and then we're going to trust Him for, for the outcome. Nehemiah said, get in there and fight for your brothers. And he said in verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. So when Sanballat and the Jews saw that, or Sanballat and his allies, not the Jews, Sanballat and his allies saw that the Jews were ready to fight, they backed off. But you'll notice Nehemiah gave the credit all to God. It was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. You know, the psalmist wrote, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. God frustrated the plans of their enemies. And Nehemiah and the people returned to their work on the wall. You see, Nehemiah took the enemy seriously, and so he prepared by setting up a plan of defense. Notice verse 16 in the first part of verse 17. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. 
I mean, they're serious. Half of the people worked while half of the people stood guard with weapons ready for war, ready for battle. Nehemiah also had the people who were carrying the building materials carry weapons, and the workers on the walls carried swords. Look at the rest of verse 17 and verse 18. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other, the sword and the trowel, right? And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And so in doing this, the work went on. And the people were prepared to fight in case of an attack. Because you see, it's not just enough to build the wall. It's not enough to do uh, the work of the Lord. We also have to be on guard and be prepared for the attacks of the enemy. We're to build with one hand, and in the other hand we hold a sword. And building and battling are both very much a part of the normal Christian life. And so we need to be on guard. And we need to be prepared for the attacks of the enemy. We need to build and battle with the weapons and the power and strength which the Lord provides. And then here now in verses 19 and 20, Nehemiah encouraged the people. We'll finish up here quickly. Verse 19, And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall from one another. Verse 20, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So he said, look, the work is great. The work may be tougher than we bargained for, but we're serving a great God. And we're separated here along the wall, but when you hear the trumpet, join us there. God is with us, Nehemiah said, and and he'll fight for us, he'll defend us. So no matter where they were along the wall, if they heard the trumpet, they were to rally to that place knowing that God would fight for them. And Nehemiah was able to rally the people to resist the enemy and to once again start clearing the rubble and rebuilding the wall. And by the grace of God and by the strength of God, the work of God went on. And in verses 21 to 23, we see that Nehemiah organized a second shift. People from outside the city stayed in Jerusalem at night to help guard the city. Notice verses 21 and 22. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So they labored in the work. Labored in the work. Not let's spread this out so we have to do as little as possible. No, they all worked, and they all labored in the work. In other words, they worked really hard, really, really hard. Some guarding, some working, doing it all for the glory of God. Nehemiah not only organized the people and encouraged them to trust the Lord, but he also set the example for them. Look at verse 23. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Nehemiah was a leader who served, and he was a servant who led. 
And when it says none of us took off our clothes, it speaks of remaining prepared for battle with the enemy if need be. They were always dressed and always ready, always on guard to respond with a moment's notice. You see, loved ones, a Christian life is a battle. But we need to keep on serving the Lord for the glory of God. Can't stop. Can't rest. Our rest is in heaven. And when opposition comes, the first thing we need to do is pray. And then we take action. We take up the sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, building and battling. And we need to rally together when the attack comes, knowing that we serve a great and an awesome God and that he's going to fight for us. Because you see, there's no turning back. There's no turning back. If you turn back and you prove that you never were really one of his. For those of us who have truly trusted in Christ alone for salvation, there's no turning back. There's no letting up. That's what the Christian life is. That's the normal Christian life. But it's become so watered down and compromised in, in this country, in Christianity, in, in, the, in, in the United States. That people think because they, they grace the church once in a while that that's what it means to be a Christian. No. No, it's not. No, it's not. And no real Christian would ever be satisfied with that. Because we're in a fight. We're in a struggle. And we are to live for Christ no matter what the cost. If it costs us everything. Because our our rest and our reward is in heaven. But right now we leave it all on the field. There's no turning back. So we're in a fight. The work may be tough, maybe tougher than we bargained for, and oftentimes it is. But we must remember the Lord, and we should still feel the awe of serving such a great and awesome God. I fear that we have forgotten what it is that God has done for us. We sing amazing grace, but grace is no longer amazing to us. It's evident by the lives that we live. And so even though it's a struggle, even though it's tough, even though the wages for serving God here may be small, as one man said, the pension is out of this world. (laughs) And loved ones, one day we're going to hear a trumpet sound, aren't we? And Jesus is going to come, the battle will be over, and our enemy will be defeated forever. And the, the more insane things become here in this world, the more we long for heaven, don't we? But that doesn't mean we just sit around and long for heaven. No, it means we, we stay dressed for the battle. We keep battling and building, battling and working. And if we find ourselves in the heat of the battle, if the opposition against us seems overwhelming and discouragement is settling in, then we need to remember the Lord great and awesome and look to him, run to him, Because our God will fight for us. I mean, the battle belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? And this is so important in our Christian life. 
and in our life together as a church. So loved ones, let's, let's keep these lessons in mind as we go forward in the grace and strength that he supplies. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.